Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Hey, get ready, Washington, D.C. sports fans. The D.C. Defenders are making history by hosting the first football playoff game in D.C. in over a decade. The game is happening this Sunday afternoon, April 30th at 3 at Audi Field. The excitement is building, and we're thrilled to announce that Walters Sports Bar will be opening early on Sunday at 10 a.m. for the game. Get your game face on, bring your friends, and join us for a fun-filled day of football, food, and drinks. Don't miss this chance to be a part of Washington, D.C. sports history. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the pitch. Swing and he's jammed at a blue pop-up shallow left center. Out goes Abrams. This could be trouble. It's going to dunk in for a hit, and it's going to score Alonzo. 7-3 Mets. Here's the pitch. Swing and a drive in the air to right center field. It's deep. This one is way back. This ball is going, going, and gone goodbye. There it is. A grand slam home run. The first since 2021 for the Nationals. C.J. Abrams, his second home run of the year, is a grand slam. And the Nationals have taken the lead here in the top of the eighth inning. Five runs across the plate. They have turned this game around. It is now the Nationals eight and the Mets seven. Unbelievable. Now the set by Thompson. The kick in. Here's his pitch. Swung on it high in the air to deep right. Thomas going back to the warning track. At the wall, he leaps, he can't make the play. Caram's in front of him, he chases it down. He's firing toward third, Alonso scores, and into third is McNeil. McNeil's first triple, his ninth RBI of the year, and the Mets lead 9-8. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, April 28th. 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, the Nats unfortunately do remain without a series sweep of any kind since August 2021, but if you watched their game on Thursday night, you did get your money's worth in terms of big moments. A wild, and I stress that word, wild, 9-8 loss at the New York Mets to deny the Nats a three-game sweep. The Nats fell to 9 and 15. We in this game saw quite a few things. We saw the Nats overcome a 7-3 eighth inning deficit. We in this game had the Nats getting doubled up in terms of hits 16-8 and yet nearly winning the game. We in this game had a grand slam from C.J. Abrams. We in this game actually had the Nats hitting multiple home runs, if you could believe that. We in this game had a big pinch RBI single by Luis Garcia. 
We had the Nats drawing three hit-by-pitches, but we also did have the Nats pitching, which lately had been good, stumble, including Mason Thompson proving himself to be mortal. But Mark, yes, a disappointing loss, but also a crazy loss. A lot to take in. Yeah, a a lot, Alan. I don't normally like taking this approach or mindset, but if it's possible to have a good loss, I think this would be it, right? There are a lot of good things in the bigger picture happened in this game. And yeah, you'd love for them to close it out and pull off a sweep at City Field. I mean, just imagine the thought of that even being possible just a few weeks ago. As much as you'd love for that, I feel like the circumstances of how they wound up blowing that weren't that big a deal. And we'll get to the reasons behind that. But like, I don't know if there is such a thing as a good loss. I feel like this would qualify. Well, this certainly was a good series. And the Nats now have won back-to-back series. And if you didn't know any better, just watching this series, and you had to say, okay, which team is the rebuilding team and which team is the perceived contending team, you'd view the Mets as the rebuilding team and the Nats as the perceived contending team. The Nats, to me, outplayed the Mets in this series. The Mets, to me, were sloppy big time in this series. A lot of defensive miscues, really bad pitching. The Nats pitching over the first two games dominated the Mets. And the Nats, for the most part, played a good series. So, you know, from that standpoint, I think if you're a Nats fan, there is a lot to like from what we've seen these last three nights. And certainly in this game, I mean, there were plenty of things to like. This game was bonkers in so many ways. A lot of ways we could sort of attack this game. But I think we have to start with what was the moment of the night from a Nats perspective, certainly, and that was the C.J. Abrams Grand Slam. This might be the most stunning occurrence this Nats season so far. C.J. Abrams, his second home run of the year, is a Grand Slam. C.J. Abrams, who hasn't exactly hit for a ton of power in his time at the major league level, and the Nats, who haven't exactly mounted a uh, high number of late-inning rallies this season, C.J. Abrams, in what ended up being a five-run Nationals eighth, smashed a one-out grand slam to right center field for an 8-7 lead, 406 feet per stat cast. This was such a bizarro inning. The Nats ended up scoring five runs in this inning and had just one hit in the inning, three hit-by-pitches for the Nats in this inning to go with a Luis Garcia RBI sack fly. But I mean, raise your hand if you had that on the bingo card, a CJ Abrams grand slam in this game and in the top of the eighth, no less. And I'll add another fact to that off a lefty, you know, (laughs) I mean, think about the the week, this road trip that CJ Abrams had three run homers first of the year at Minnesota on a pitch way down below the zone. And now a grand slam to take the lead in the eighth inning off a left-hander. And this was this was a no-doubter. There was no question that he got all of this one. So that's why those kinds of things is, is why I, I want to try to look at, the, at this as a glass-half-full situation and say, yeah, they lost the game. But that is such a big deal for a young guy in that spot against that pitcher to come through like that. And so it was a great thing to see. And I'll I'll be honest, as the inning is playing out, and it was such a bizarre rally, like you said, hit by pitch, hit by pitch, error, and now the sack fly. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't see them pulling this off because look where they are in the lineup. It's Robles and Abrams. You know, you're hoping there for some contact, maybe manufacture another run. You're just not in your wildest dreams thinking, bring them all home with one swing. That's just not the part of the lineup you're thinking that with. And so for them to come through like that with such a big swing, I think is phenomenal. And did you see the stat? This is an all-time stat here. C.J. Abrams, 
22 years and 206 days old to hit his Grand Slam. He's the youngest Nationals player with a Grand Slam since Ryan Zimmerman, no huge surprise there, on April 22nd, 2007, almost exactly 16 years ago. Ryan Zimmerman on that day was 22 years old, 206 days, identical to C.J. Abrams. The great Sarah Langs of MLB.com had that one. That is a phenomenal stat and comparison that both of them would do that at the exact same age. And he's got a long way to go. But if C.J. Abrams does half of what Ryan Zimmerman did during his career, uh, that's going to be a huge career for him with the Nationals. I got to tell you, watching this game, I thought it was basically over when Erasmo Ramirez in the bottom of the six gave up three runs. I said, okay, you know, it's been a nice series. You take two out of three, but this game probably is over. And it ended up not being over. Uh, The fun was just beginning. And, you know, I mentioned the Nats getting doubled up in terms of hits in this game, 16-8, and yet nearly winning the game. The way you can do that is when you hit for power. And the Nats in this game did hit two home runs. I mean, when the Nats hit one home run, we go crazy because we're like, wow, the Nats actually hit a home run. They had two home runs in this game. And the guy who hit the other home run was Alex Call. And I tell you, what Alex Call is doing in his playing time so far this season is pretty impressive. Alex Call on Thursday night as an ad starting left fielder and number one batter, two for four with a solo homer, a single and a walk. And he had a nice defensive play. But Call in an ad's one run third, a leadoff opposite field home run to right center field to tie the game at one. I mentioned the walk. This guy has been like a walk-generating machine, and so many of the walks are coming in the first innings of games. He, in the top of the first, drew a leadoff walk. Alex Call leads the Nats in walks his regular season with 15. His on-base percentage now is up to 371. And, you know, with Call, it's not just the walks even. He sees so many pitches each plate appearance, which is always something that you want from a leadoff guy, right? Like you want him to work the pitcher, allow other batters to see what the pitcher has. Adam Eaton used to be good at that, right? Like grinding out at bats, driving up pitchers, pitch counts. You know, I don't want to overstate what Cole has been or what he could be, but I tell you, he's doing a nice job. And I mentioned the defensive play, bottom of the third, a nice running backhanded catch of a Francisco Lindor foul ball while crashing into the sidewall for the second out. Some good stuff from Alex Cole. Swing a high drive to left field again, deep toward the corner. Long chase call toward the side, warning track up against the side wall. He makes the catch and braces and holds on. Yeah, and what you were just saying there earlier, that's the reason that he is hitting leadoff. I know the overall stats aren't really great. They don't blow you away. But what he gives them is a quality at bat seemingly all of the time. That first inning leadoff walk is a seven-pitch walk. And you could tell from the start, He's not going up there thinking, first good pitch, I'm just going to take a whack at it. He has a plan up there, and his plan, especially in the first inning, is to make the pitcher work. And, you know, they didn't convert that inning, and I thought that was going to be a bad sign for the night when they did ultimately load the bases. And Stone Garrett just missed getting a hold of one himself. It could have been a grand slam. I thought they were going to miss that opportunity and that that was going to cost them. But he sets the tone with a seven-pitch walk, and all of a sudden, Joey Lucchese is on the ropes from the very beginning. And even though that isn't ultimately where the game was decided, I do think it set the right tone for the evening from an offensive standpoint. And yeah, that to me is why he is leading off. Even though there may be other guys with some better numbers overall, Call's going to give you that really good professional at bat almost all the time. And he's not afraid 
to be up there with two strikes and force him to put something over the plate and he'll take his walk, he'll foul a couple pitches off, drive up a pitch count. So there's still room to grow there. I don't know if this guy really is the answer in the long run or not, but I think for what he's being asked to do right now, he's done a pretty good job of it. He on Thursday night was the only national to have at least two hits in this game. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, unlike Mackenzie Gore and C.J. Abrams, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Mason Kalfas has recruiters in six states and has placed lawyers in more than half of the 100 largest law firms in the United States. While you may be reading doom and gloom from the legal press, many practices are red hot antitrust, IP litigation, white collar litigation, finance and direct lending, and healthcare, for example. Mason has worked with DOJ, SEC, and all kinds of government lawyers to get law firm partnerships at some of the most prestigious firms in the country. He also regularly works with partners at law firms looking to upgrade their platforms or brands to firms to better fit those partners' practices. Or sometimes, okay, let's be honest, often, Mason Kalfas works with partners looking for more money as a fair reward for the business that the partners are bringing in. Even in the quote-unquote slow first quarter of 2023, Mason Kalfas worked with three different lawyers who doubled the compensation their previous law firms were paying those lawyers. Because you are not under a CBA or team control for six years. In fact, staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfas. He is Scott Boris-like when it comes to law firm partner contracts, and Mason Kalfas will negotiate you a new and better contract today. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. Hunter deals. Swing and a line drive center field over the leaping Lindor. Base hit. Scoring from third, Manessis. Thomas two-third. And it's station to station. The Nationals get a run on the Garcia pinch hit RBI single. It's now 4-2 Mets. Tying run at second base. It was an interesting lineup. The Nats were facing a left-handed starting pitcher, so you did see a bit of a different look to Davey Martinez's lineup. Included in that mix was Luis Garcia not starting the game. He did come off the bench, and he was productive. One for one with a big pinch RBI single and that RBI sack fly Garcia in the Nats. Two runs, six. The pinch one-out bases loaded RBI single to center field to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-2. But I wanted to ask you about this. So Michael Chavis was the Nats' starting second baseman in this game. He went 0-2. Chavis got the start at second for arresting Luis Garcia, as opposed to Jeter Downs getting the start. And, you know, this is really getting kind of weird with Jeter Downs. So the Nats on April 11th recalled Jeter Downs from AAA Rochester. He was a guy who was brought up when the Nats put Ildemaro Vargas on the 10-day injured list with his left shoulder strain. Now, you know, Jeter Downs is not like some top 100 prospect now, but he has been. He, per MLB Pipeline, was the number 49 prospect in baseball coming into the 2021 season. This season is only his age 24 season. This is a guy who the Nats got off waivers from Boston this past December. So again, not trying to overstate what Jeter Downs is, but it's kind of odd to me 
You bring the guy up multiple weeks ago now, and we have not seen him. What do you think the thinking is here from Davey, starting a veteran in Michael Chavis for whom uh, the ceiling would seem to be rather limited, instead of giving Jeter Downs at least an opportunity to show what he can do? Well, first of all, I'm glad that Jeter Downs has already made his major league debut because this would be torture if he hadn't. You would hate to see a guy. It happens every once in a while. Somebody gets called up for a day or two, doesn't get into a game, and then never makes his debut. For somebody to be up for like two weeks and not play is really, really rare, but at least he has been in the big leagues before. Look, I think we saw this spring what the feeling is in this department. Jeter Downs had a chance to win a job on the team. They went with Chavis. And the idea all along was they picked up Jeter Downs off waivers because they thought, here's a former top prospect who still has some potential, but let's be clear, has not come close to living up to it the last few years, both at AAA and the little bit of time he's had in the big leagues. Did not have a particularly good spring, was not even hitting particularly well at AAA when they called him up. They needed a middle infielder because of the injuries. It was Vargas going on the IL, but also Luis Garcia had a hamstring issue at that point. And the other infielder they had in the minors, Jake Alou, was hurt as well. So it was kind of like last resort. We got to call somebody up. He's the one who's going to get the call. I kind of had a hunch all along. He's probably not going to play. The problem here is this is a guy who does need to play almost every day just at the AAA level. He's not going to play in the big leagues. But it's been a waste of two weeks because he could have been getting this time at AAA, maybe find out what he's got in him. I understand if you're Davey Martinez, you're saying, we're trying to win a ball game. Michael Chavis is, was on this team on opening day for a reason, and Jeter Downs wasn't for a reason. So I get all that. The hope would be we're only a few days away from this happening. Vargas has left to go on a rehab assignment at AAA. I would guess he'll spend the weekend in Rochester. Maybe if he's all good, come Monday, he's activated and Jeter Downs gets sent back. It's unfortunate, but I understand. I don't think they're going to force that to put a guy out there in the field in a big league game that they, quite frankly, don't really view as a starting big league player right now. Yeah, that's fine. I guess I would just say, then why'd you call him up? Leave him at AAA and let him get plate appearances. Who would you have called up? They didn't have anyone at the time. There's nobody else. I mean, there's nobody in the organization they could have called up. From an infield standpoint, they were kind of stuck because of Alou also being hurt. It would have required a 40-man move, and you don't really want to waste that. Now, they could have, once because Alou is back now, they could have at some point flipped those two, and maybe you do that. Maybe they thought Vargas wasn't going to be out as long. It's unfortunate because, like I said, this is a kid who needs to be playing. I just think they don't feel like playing him at the big league level is what's right for him as they try to, you know, it's like a reclamation project. They're trying to see if they can turn him back into anything. And are you going to do that at the big league level playing, you know, once or twice in two weeks? Yeah. I mean, and it's more than two weeks now. It's 16 days. He's just been languishing on the bench. I don't know. It's just- The unfortunate thing, and this is, again, one of the reasons I haven't loved the AL rules everywhere. There's never a pinch hit They hardly ever pinch run, no double switch. Like, I feel like in an old National League style, there would have been an opportunity, even if it was in the ninth inning when they're down three runs, hey, go take an at-bat, get your feet wet, kind of see how this goes. The way these games go now, that's just not an option. Yeah. I mean, again, though, you're a rebuilding team. The purpose of this season isn't to play Michael Chavis to try to eke out another win. Like, it's to try to develop some of these younger guys, whether they want to admit that or not. And, you know, when you have a guy like this, if you see anything in him to just have him waste away for more than half a month on the bench like this, I don't know. I just, 
I think it's kind of odd. But whatever the case, the Nats uh, did do well offensively for the most part in this game. You know, another thing with the lineup for this game, you had Joey Manessis playing first base, and uh, he had some defensive struggles in this game. I thought this was unfortunate. C.J. Abrams in the bottom of the third got charged with a throwing error on a two-out grounder by Pete Alonso. But I mean, if you watch the play, the throwing error, and I put those two words in quotation marks, throwing error, was a one-hop throw that very much could have been caught by Manessis at first base, but wasn't. And Abrams made a nice play on the play. Swinging a ground ball, softly hit towards short. It's backhanded by Abrams deep in the hole. He plants and throws on one bounce, and Manessis can't handle the scoop. That was a fairly routine hop for Manessis, but it's in and out of his glove, and Alonzo is safe. But geez, you'd like to see your first baseman make the pick, and Manessis, unfortunately, did not do that. And then later in the game, and you know, I don't want to kill Manessis for this because this was kind of a tricky play, but the three-run double by Francisco Lindor in that Mets four-run fourth, Lindor hit the ball down the first baseline. Manessis made like a sliding attempt at the ball and it got by him. Tough play. I'm not trying to crush Joey for that, but you know, you wonder if a better defensive first baseman might have caught that ball. Yeah. So on the uh, the air, I would have personally called it a single. I thought it was a tough play and, and would have taken a really good play to get him out. If you've already decided, well, uh, you know, we had the ball and it's a routine throw and it would have had him. Okay. I understand that I think by official scores, sort of their guidelines that they're given, any throw that hits the dirt, you have to give the air to the thrower, not the receiver. But you and I both know that that was much more on Manessis. And this is where the value of Dom Smith comes in. And we talk about these things all the time. We used to talk about it with Ryan Zimmerman and before that, Adam LaRoche. They save their infielders from so many errors by making plays just like that. They're not routine, but they're the kind of plays you expect a good first baseman to make. And quite frankly, that's not who Joey Manessis is. So I did think that this is a game that we may end up talking about in the end, how they really did miss Dom Smith's glove out there. And it shows you why they really do want to try to get Smith going at the plate enough because they realize the value that he has in the field for them. And that's that trade-off that they have to decide now as they move forward. Is Dom Smith an everyday player? Are you going to sacrifice the lost offense potentially in exchange for the good defense. In this game, you saw what a difference maybe the defense might have made. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Everyone loves a smart investment, especially right now, and there is no better place to put your money right now than in your home. If your home is 20 years old or older, Window Nation has the perfect offer for you. Get 0% financing for five years. This is unheard of, zero interest for five years. Plus, Window Nation will give you two free windows for every two windows that you buy. Protect and increase the value of your home today. Get this special deal. Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. You can save up to 30% on your energy bills. You can increase the value of your home by up to $12,000 and you can pay zero interest for five years and get two free windows for every two windows that you buy. And this goes for any style of window from Window Nation. There is no limit. Save thousands of dollars on your new windows and then save thousands of dollars on your energy bills, all while upgrading the look and feel of your home. 
Call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that you want the deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, zero interest for five years, plus two free windows for every two windows that you buy. 866-90NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline here's the set 2-0 pitch swung on line to right center field toward the gap that's going to get down and go to the fence Marte trots home with a tie run and Alonso's heading for second with a double the Mets have tied the game and now have the go-ahead run in scoring position with one out as Alonso drives in his second run of the night and 25th of the year and Mason Thompson will be charged with a blown save Well, the Nats pitching on Thursday night left some things to be desired. Nats pitching was so good over the first two games of this series at the Mets, especially the starting pitching. Trevor Williams was the Nats starting pitcher on Thursday night. He had been good lately. Williams, unfortunately, was not so good in this game on Thursday night. Four runs in five innings, and he just seemed off for much of his outing. He gave up nine hits, a home run, a double, and seven singles. He issued two walks. He did have four strikeouts. He did throw a good number of strikes, although he also threw a good number of pitches, uh, 95 pitches, 62 strikes versus 33 balls. And if you look at the StatCast data, and if you just watch the game, to be honest, he gave up a lot of hard contact. Uh, Williams just seemed off for a good chunk of this game. Bottom of the second, allowed a run on two one-out singles and a one-out RBI sack fly. And then he gave up a two-out single and issued a two-out walk. How about what happened in the bottom of the fourth? Williams in that inning gives up multiple runs, which all came after he began the bottom of the fourth with back-to-back strikeouts. He gave up a two-out solo home run, 
by Brett Beatty to right center field for a 2-1 Mets lead. Then he gave a back-to-back two-out singles. Then he issued a two-out walk. And then he gave up that aforementioned double by Francisco Lindor. And this was a two-out, three-run double by Lindor on an 0-2 pitch. And the Mets ended up going up 4-1 with what happened there. So look, Williams overall has been good. He was not very good in this game, I thought, on Thursday night. No, I agree. And I actually think he was fortunate to get out of it, having only given up the four runs. I'll go all the way back to the first inning and the beginning of the second. The first four batters of the game, he actually retires them all, but they're all fly balls and three of them are hit to the warning track. So to me, that was already a bad sign that he is giving up some loud contact, got the outs, but they were very loud outs. The Mets were right on him for a lot of that. And you saw as the night played out that it kind of devolved from there. So yeah, this is the first one he's had like this. He'd given them pretty much a chance in every game. And ultimately, I mean, he did keep them close enough where they you know, were still in it right down to the wire. And he's not the reason they lost the game, but he was not in his best form. And for a guy who is supposed to be about sinkers and ground balls and weak contact, you could tell early on that's not what he was in this game. And so something was off for him. And I do think he was kind of fortunate to get out of this only giving up the four runs. Yeah, that was a two-run double by Lindor. I think I may have said three-run double at one point. So Williams was off in this game. And then we had what we had with the Nats bullpen, which again, for the most part, has been good this season. We've certainly sung the praises of the Nats bullpen a good bit. We in this series saw excellence from Mason Thompson in the Game 1 win. We saw excellence from Hunter Harvey in the Game 2 win. But then we had what we had on Thursday night. Four Nats relievers combined to allow five runs in three innings. And the two culprits were Rosmo Ramirez and, yeah, Mason Thompson. Uh, Ramirez in the bottom of the six allowed three runs on a leadoff single by Brandon Nimmo up the middle, a one-out RBI double by Francisco Lindor off the right field fence, a one-out RBI single by Pete Alonso through the left side of the infield, and a first pitch two-out RBI single by Daniel Vogel back into no man's land in shallow left center. All of that gave the Mets a 7-3 lead. Hobie Harris did then toss a scoreless bottom of the seventh. And then Mason Thompson was quite honestly a disaster in the bottom of the eighth inning. This was pretty stunning. As surprising as the C.J. Abrams grand slam was on the positive end of the spectrum, I thought the Mason Thompson performance was surprising on the negative end of the spectrum. He had been so good this season. This is going to happen with relievers. We get that. But Mason Thompson in the bottom of the eighth faced four batters. He recorded just one out and he allowed two runs. A leadoff single by Starling Marte to center, a one-out game-tying opposite field RBI double by Pete Alonso to the right center field gap to tie the game at eight, and then a one-out RBI triple by Jeff McNeil off the right field wall for a 9-8 Mets lead. And just like that, the lead that the Nats had taken off the Abrams Grand Slam was lost. Uh, Kyle Finnegan had to be brought into the game. He faced two batters and got two outs. But yeah, Mason Thompson is human. Who knew? Well, and you could tell that he was off from the get-go. His best thing all year long up to this point has been his strike-throwing ability. And I think it's 70% strike rate that he had as of a couple days ago. And in this one, he starts off 1-0 on Marte, gives up the single. 2-0 to Alonzo for the RBI double and 1-0 to McNeil on the RBI triple. So all three batters who got a hit off him did so well ahead in the count. So there's that. He only threw nine out of his 15 pitches for strikes overall. But beyond that, you could see his misses were way off. 
Cabot Ruiz would set up on one side of the plate and the pitch would come in at the complete opposite side of the zone and even outside the zone. You could tell he just didn't have it. Now, it's easy for me to say this, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm looking at a guy who only 48 hours earlier pitched three innings in relief, a dominant three innings. It was a phenomenal thing, got the three inning save. It was only 28 pitches, so not a huge workload, but it's still three innings. And coming back two days later into a high leverage spot like that, it looked on the outside to me like a guy who was probably gassed and just didn't have his best stuff and his best command in this game. So, you know, I would be surprised if that was not the reason for it. Now, I know people are going to say, well, why is he back in there two days later? And I would just look at who else were you going to throw? The good news for the Nationals is that every single game they're in, they're either winning or they're really close. The bad news for the Nationals is every single game they're either winning or it's really close, and that's forcing Davey Martinez to use his high leverage, best relievers. And so you already had the night before Carl Edwards, who did not pitch well, 15 pitches, only got one out, two walks. You had Hunter Harvey, very good, but go an inning in two thirds. I don't think you're going to bring him back the next day, given what he's been through. You can't get two innings out of Finnegan. He pitched the ninth the night before. I don't know who else you're going to go to, or if it is somebody else, it's somebody who's not really one of your late inning, high leverage guys. So I understand rolling the dice with Mason Thompson there, but I'm not surprised necessarily at the results. Yeah, I mean, I think as time goes on here and the Nats are in the midst of this stretch with no scheduled off days, although with the weather forecast for this weekend, you may be getting an off day. We'll see. You know, you do wonder if these multi-inning appearances are going to catch up to Mason Thompson, but like when it comes to the Thaddeus Wards and the Anthony Bondas and, you know, even a Hobie Harris, you, you may have to start to lean on one or more of those guys more than you want just because, I mean... It may not be realistic for Mason Thompson to end up throwing, say, 90 innings this season. I mean, that'd be lovely. I'd love to see that. But, you know, I don't know how realistic that is. I mean, we're not even a full month into the season, and already a lot has been asked of Mason Thompson. And, you know, God forbid, say, Hunter Harvey does get injured. Like, then what? So it's tricky. I mean, I, I am sympathetic with Davey in that regard. You wonder if Ramirez had pitched better in the sixth, if maybe he had come back out for the seventh, and then you could have maybe used Harris for the eighth, although I don't know if Davey would have done that or not. But you know, at some point, Davey may have to force himself to get comfortable with guys without the last names of Finnegan, Thompson, or Harvey in high leverage spots here. You know, Maybe you throw Edwards into that mix too, because it's, it's tough. I mean, even when the Nats pitch well from a starting pitching standpoint, you're still only talking about like five, six innings for the most part. So a lot is being asked of the bullpen and the innings are going to catch up to you, uh, especially as the season goes on and you start to have these stretches with few scheduled off days. Yeah. And especially when, like I said, you're not losing games by four or five runs where you can say, okay, Thad Ward and Hobie Harris, you got the rest of this one and then save everybody else for the next day. When they're in games and they're tight, this is what you're going to end up with. But I agree. I think Erasmo Ramirez and his outing is really what set in motion everything else that followed. And, you know, we talked going into the season about the volatility of relievers and how many of these guys would come back and do what they did the previous year. I mean, to their credit, most of them have. It's so far, it's been very good. I would say Rosmo is the one that stands out right now that is not duplicating his performance from 2022. Not shocking. A veteran who had a really nice year, kind of out of nowhere. They re-signed him, which I get that was the right move to make. But 
in the back of your mind, you probably thought, yeah, maybe too much to ask for him to do that again. And we have seen him probably more than anyone else in that bullpen uh, among the guys you were expecting to be good or who were good last year has not been able to, to sustain that. That kind of set the tone, I think, for the rest of the night. And it left them in this spot where now Davey had to call on a guy who has had a very heavy workload and maybe in a perfect world would not have been pitching in this game at all. It's funny, if not for the comeback, if not for the Abrams Grand Slam, pretty good chance we don't see Mason Thompson. So in some ways, he was the victim of something very good, which was that C.J. Abrams Grand Slam. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the podcast, email Tim Shovers at NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Check out our new website, NatsChatPodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram as well, at NatsChatPodcast. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit TimNewmark.com. Before we call it a show, we have something special for you. So a few shows ago, I talked about the big news in the Mazin dispute that we had this past Tuesday morning of the state of New York Court of Appeals ruling in favor of the Nats in a big ruling in the Mazin dispute. We're going to take you now to a Nats Chat correspondent. He is an attorney, Sam Cowan. He is a loyal listener of this podcast, and he has provided us with this analysis of the latest in the Mazin dispute. So take in the teachings of Mr. Cowan, and we thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Thanks to Tim and Al and Mark for the daily gift of the Nats Chat Podcast, and thanks for inviting me onto the show to talk for just a few minutes about the Nats' big legal victory over the Baltimore Orioles on Tuesday in New York State Court. Much has been made over the years of the Masson dispute, but the six-to-nothing opinion of the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York, in favor of the Nats on Tuesday was really just the resolution of a pretty straightforward and very narrow arbitration issue. The case relates to a very specific provision of the 2005 agreement between the Masson slash Orioles and the Nationals that brought the Nats to D.C. The provision relates to the payment of telecast rights fees from Masson to the Nats for the period of 2012 to 2016 only. So as Al mentioned on Wednesday's podcast, the case really had nothing to do with the Nats rights fees moving forward and has nothing to do with the Nats a small share overall of Masson compared to the Orioles. It just has to do with this limited four-year period of time. Back in 2012, the Nats and the Masson slash O's were unable to reach an agreement on the amount of fees the Nats should receive. So they submitted their dispute to a three-arbitrator panel administered by Major League Baseball called the Revenue Sharing Definitions Committee, or the RSDC. And back in 2012, the RSDC issued an arbitration award that was largely favorable to the Nats, giving them most but not all of the telecast rights fees that they were seeking at the time. The Orioles challenged that 2012 decision of the arbitration panel in New York State Court and actually won. They convinced the court that under the Federal Arbitration Act, that the arbitrators back in 2012 had been evidently partial toward the Nats. They had argued the Orioles at the time that the same law firm had represented Major League Baseball, the Nationals, and the three teams that had sent arbitrators 
to serve on the RSDC panel. So the New York State Court sent it back to the RSDC for a second arbitration proceeding before a brand new arbitration panel. And that panel issued another decision that was favorable to the Nats, the bottom line being that the Nats would receive roughly $100 million in additional telecast rights fees. The Orioles once again relied on the Federal Arbitration Act, arguing this time that the panel had been partial in favor of the Nats because of public statements that MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred had made that the Orioles viewed as favorable to the Nationals' position. This time around, though, the Orioles lost in New York State Court. The trial court, the intermediate appellate court, and then on Tuesday, New York's highest court found that the panel had been impartial, that there was no basis to overturn the arbitration award, and that the Nats uh, were entitled to the amount of telecast rights fees that they had been awarded all the way back several years ago. So the bottom line is a great day for the Nationals in court on Tuesday. Some have suggested that the process could drag out uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. It's possible that the Orioles could uh, seek to have the U.S. Supreme Court take on this case, but it seems very highly unlikely uh, that the U.S. Supreme Court would take it. This is really not the kind of issue, narrow issue, that the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, would take on. So good day for the Nats, good day for Nats fans, uh, good day for all of the listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Go Nats! Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.